Love Token. Welcome to Watool Podcast number three. Is that what we're doing now? Watool Podcast. Well, we're trying to get the handle, oh, the Watool. Twitter handle and the Instagram handle. Yeah, Watool Podcast. Watool. What does it mean? What doesn't it mean? I mean, it's, does it have anything to do with Petro Tool? Doesn't everything? Mm. I suppose detractors might say, what a bunch of tools when we, uh, mm. you know, disagree, when they disagree with us. Mm. Um, but of course, really what it stands for is we are the only ones left. And this is episode number three with... My good friend, Ross Armstrong. Hello. And myself, Thomas Andrews. And we are almost, we're entering this sort of, the last dark, cosy stretch of the year. The right time to be watching movies. The right time to barricade yourself in and watch some movies. Next episode is going to be, and I'm already looking forward to this one, it's just going to be us talking Christmas movies. Christmas movies. Are we going to do a top ten or something like that? We could do that. We could do that. We could do... We I'm could just spitballing here. We could spit... Yeah, we could be talking about what are our favourite... What do we think of the most overrated? What do you think of the most underrated? And also, what qualifies as a Christmas movie? That's good. Because you get a lot of memes, don't you? Yeah. There's people who think Die Hard's a Christmas movie, and then there's arseholes. Edward like Scissorhands. Ed, this that is out we there. talked about. We had to be honest. I we started know. our What's a Christmas Movie conversation... Around about mid-October. We have. That tells you all you need now. to know about us. In fact, we just had a lot of images of, uh, of uh, Thanksgiving, mm. which I've been seeing all over Instagram. Personally, I am a bit of an Instagram addict. And it sort of Thanksgiving sets me up visually for Christmas, even though emotionally it obviously has no attachment to me. Anything. No, no, as an Englishman, I, I, it really means very little to me whatsoever. Well, interestingly, I think these two or three movies we're going to talk about, uh, the Coen Brothers uh, movie and the, the Wells Double Bill, the documentary uh, and the movie, mm. I, I kind of function as quite a good Thanksgiving, if you will, uh, movies, I think. There's something about looking forward and looking back with both these movies. Yeah, uh, a kind of futurism put. that Orson Welles was looking for, but also there is a kind of coziness into stepping back into Orson Welles' world, which is both strange and weird and beguiling, but also a bit comforting if you're a fan of Citizen Kane. And the Coen brothers, who are sort of taking on life and death, I think, in their well, movie. There's something very exciting about watching uh, a film director kick Hollywood in the balls mm. from the grave, which yeah. you know, shouldn't really be possible. Yeah, and yet somebody does it. And on top the fact and he managed to get Netflix to stump up five million to help him do it, mm. and but you know half of the most respected indie directors in uh, working in Hollywood at the moment. Well, that's it is very much a November a couple of uh, two or three movies we put together because because you can watch them from home. These are both Netflix movies. You can, you can, you can. So we're going to get into this in a second, but um, I, to be honest, there aren't very many Thanksgiving movies I can think of. The only one I can mm. think of is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, exactly. which we talked about a while ago, and yeah. you you found you went back and you. You kind of, it had the emotional pull, but you said you didn't find it very funny. I think what's happened with Planes, Trains and Automobiles, you have to watch it as a, a sort of artefact of that era. Of it, yes. I think to watch it now, I just think humour changes so quickly. And it just looks like people getting angry. And I, I genuinely now, I don't understand why they're angry at certain points or, or <laughs> what is... What is uh, pissing them off quite in the way that they're getting pissed off. But it doesn't quite make sense. It's Our emotions first, have changed. It's the first ever, if I'm correct, yeah. it's the first ever seasonal John Mo- Hughes movie. Yes. And I would say, this is skipping ahead to the next episode, mm. but the way in which we view Christmas has an awful lot to do. Well, they, who is it? Like, um, I think it was Napoleon said, to understand a man, you need to know what the world was like when he was 20. 
Ah. To understand a, a person's feelings towards Christmas, you need to know like what Christmas was like when they were eight. Mm, that's very true. And therefore, we are of the John Hughes uh, Americana Christmas generation, which is Home Alone, Uncle Buck, um, uh, National Lampoons, the remake of Miracle on 34th Street. This is all John Hughes. Mm. And the first one, which isn't quite Christmas, but is getting there, I suppose, is Plain it's Strange. It's Plain Strange. Well, but it's funny because I would argue all day for how well Home Alone has stood up, for instance. Oh, my God. How, wait a second. How the... Did I miss that one? No, out? you threw that in there. Did yeah, I chuck that? Oh, yeah. good. Okay. Because that is a movie that's to- for me totally great. Still mm. conjures up all the stuff you'd want from a Christmas and movie. And it's better. You go back to I it and you realise it's yeah. a, it's a machine tooled it comedy. Is, and it's good. And it's the emotions in it are nice. And the attitude towards family is great. And uh, you he, know, he set that Pixar tone as well. I'd oh, say that's true. Which is that perfect if you get it just right and it's not smug. That you you know you it's a it's a it's a it's a meal that suits you know, a meal mm. it's a cinematic meal yes. it's a cultural no it's not a meal it's a film it's a film <laughs> that everybody can love um, and is ultimately a family film but has just the right little nods and winks to the parents at the back and, you know yeah the go the go over the kids' heads when you go back to you think mm. and actually you do you pride yourself as a kid when you do get some of the slightly more adult jokes yeah. but I was also thinking the weird thing about um, uh, Thanksgiving images on uh, Instagram is the fact that they're always so perfect. Like, I suppose this is to do with like lifestyle and how everything is done and with its Gwyneth Paltrow mm. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I realised when Good. I was looking, I was, I've been unwell. You might be able to tell from my slightly mm. sort of uh, voice. And there'll be a hardcore editing session that goes on after this that will be about removing me going into the... Because mm. nobody wants to hear that in their ear. He, was, he started with five minutes of just... Just five minutes of hardcore yeah. coughing. I just coughed myself silly in the yeah. hope that I couldn't cough anymore. Yeah. There's no one out there. There's no, there's no guy that out there. There's no weird, creepy guy that's got a cough fetish. I'd say mm. nobody likes to hear another person cough... Or clear their throat in their ear. But if they do, we'll hashtag it. We'll do a hashtag cough. We, cough, I might set up another fetish. Twitter account, yeah. another Twitter handle that very clearly kind of doesn't have our actual names on, and yeah. just just test it. Just, just see if people just like throw that. it out there to the yeah to, to the dark web to the It'd perverts. See if it's got any currency. Yeah, for this show to go, wouldn't it be a very odd? You know, it's just just turned into sort of voice cough fetish stuff. But when but because we're heading though into that territory where you start to see these sort of beautifully manicured images of Thanksgiving mm. and Christmas. I've started to get to the point where I don't want to see real images of Christmas. Mm. I don't want to see real people's families. I find myself, this is what it's turned, the sort of cynic it's turned me into. Mm. I think, who's cast the grandma? She's just not quite right. It's a bit like I was thinking about um, uh, people's grandparents. Like everybody loves their grandparents. But you know when you see a photo on Facebook and it goes, oh, here's old Pop Pops meeting Ray for the first time (laughs) and his granddad. (laughs) And he looks like this sort of spider-limbed, sunken-faced old kitty catcher. And he's sitting there looking like he smells of burnt mustard. (laughs) You know. It's extraordinary. An old piss-sodden carpet. And he's holding this baby. And part of you is thinking, God, it looks like he wants to suck the soul out of that thing. What I like about this is that you've done not only the run that sometimes people do sort of after they're very comfortable with people, where they go, babies, you know, not everyone's baby is always cracked up to be, is it? People's grandparents like old man. But you're going, not just their babies, their grandparents, probably their parents, most of their brothers and sisters. You don't like the look of any of them. If If it's not Gwyneth Paltrow... (laughs) <laughs> and that she's been starred by Elder yeah. I don't want to see your Thanksgiving or Christmas. You, but that's what it's done yeah. to me, and I don't like that. Also, you know, again, we'll get on to the next week. There's a trailer already that's gone up on Netflix because this is going to be a streaming special, which I think mm-hmm. is appropriate as mm-hmm. the nights are drawing in. Absolutely. And also was necessary just because uh, I was so sick mm-hmm. that... 
I, we wanted to review Disobedience, which I know that Ross went to go and see. It but did. I actually thought that I cannot sit and watch an intense Semitic lesbian uh, sex drama in my local picture house whilst I'm snotting all over the seats mm, and leaving snail those, trails, yeah. which might be giving the staff the wrong idea when they clean up after me. I don't want that. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, that's oh, too dear. much. Well, that was, too, that was, too much. It was a lot, but let's just say it was just enough. It was just well. But I was, there's Kurt Russell is on these great uh, trailers at the moment for I think it's called Christmas Con- Chronicles. It's the Netflix Christmas. Yes, film. I'm quite excited. I like Kurt Russell. As I a, as do Fat wonder whether we should at least watch that so we can talk about one new thing next I'm time. In. And this I'm is dangerous because we spent the first five minutes. I spent the first five minutes pushing mm. everything in the direction of next week's yes. uh, uh, next uh, week's episode. But have you noticed he's a very sexy Father Christmas? I think he's quite a sexy Father very Christmas. Very sexy. They've made him into a real sort of uh, 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 sylph, I suppose. It'd well. Be. You you get that for free Self? with Kurt, don't you? For, with Kurt, you just get that. You can't you can't, t- you can't, you turn, can't it off. turn the sex off no, with Kurt Russell, can you? <laughs> you couldn't do it you in go, death Kurt, proof. Mate, you're, you're playing Father Christmas. Turn the sex down. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I just can't do it. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could find the button. Let me go grab my sack and I'll get back. To, okay, everything you say. <laughs> but uh, but again, though, the have. real Father Christmas probably wears medical sandals and like gets a bit drunk and rants about how things were more fun before Me Too came along the room. I like the idea of this show, though, of course, which is constantly referencing next week. This is the most un- <laughs> Maybe, in the moment. The show that never comes. They never can know. The show, God, the perfect week. show that never arrives. Next week is going to be a real, real hundred percent. But this week you'll just have to sort of waiting for Godot. Yeah. Godot being a good show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> waiting for good show. Yes. But this is, this is a streaming this is a streaming special, and we're going to be talking about um, uh, the new Coen Brothers film. Yeah. Uh, the What's It of Buster Scruggs? The, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. We're going to be talking about, I'm going to cut it out. We're going to be talking about the new Coen Brothers film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. But first of all, we're going to talk about uh, The Other Side of the Wind, uh, the, the final film from Orson Welles. Whether you say it is a 2018 release or whether you say it's a 1976 release, or, I don't or a mid eighties at some or point release. Eighties were still working on it then. Well, exactly, and and the, so Netflix finally stumped up the money to get this project finished. Well, firstly, it was mired in kind of legal wrangles for years, mm. and they stumped up the money to have it finished. And also, they've released it with a brilliant documentary. Well, apart from Alan Cummings' Strange Interludes, <laughs> which we need to talk about, great documentary by old. a gentleman called Morgan Nelville called yep. uh, "They'll Love Me When I'm Dead," yes. which explains the extraordinary story. And I do think. That if you're going to dive deep into this world, mm. um, do it with a character-led performance by Alan Cumming. Yeah, <laughs> doing may, it a may, sort of posh English accent, sort of a sort of fifties. Is he supposed Alan to be a character Cumming from the past? Is, is that what he's doing? Well, the, the thing is, it's such an extraordinary uh, story anyway, full yeah. of incredible theatrical characters, mm. none more th- so than Orson Welles himself. Yet for some reason. Uh, Alan Cumming has it's decided that it wouldn't. It just will not do to just do a standard voiceover. So I feel mm. like he's filmed with his own segments <laughs> and sent them is... in. And 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 also they're compl- they're not period appropriate. So you've no. got Alan Cumming is popping up talking about this great seventies movie that was made of that that brilliant sweet spot. That kind of you know Raging Bull, Easy Riders, the end of uh, kind of independent cinema. So when cinema was kind of down its ass in the early seventies, but all the auteurs were coming up, the European ones, the Bergmans, the Antonionis. You had Dennis Hopper, you had you had Peter Bogdanovich, who's involved in this film. And just before George Lucas came along, Steven Spielberg started to make blockbusters. So it's just at that sort of sweet spot. Alan Cumming, on the other hand, has decided to film a Mad Men-themed 
sort of murder mystery <laughs> series of that, segments where he's coming and going. <laughs> well, I have to say, I think it's, it's very, pure accidental part. As we talk about auteurs, it's very unfair to lay that at Alan Cummings' door. There is absolutely no chance that but Cummings he came was up the with one that. who came no, up actually, with that. I could have said that as a joke to he's, begin with. But. He's, He's literally been cast in a in a quite an odd move, which sort of works kind of for me well, as it goes you on. Can't right. get too theatrical, but anyway, listen. I think the easiest. I was thinking the easiest way to do this is we need to talk briefly about the history of who Orson Welles was yep. for a second. I think just to probably bring everybody up to speed. Yep. So I don't think we should assume that everybody knows a lot about Orson Welles, and then the history of how this movie came to be before we talk about what we thought about the movie. Just because I don't think you can divorce. The, this movie and your experiences I mean I don't think you should from the history that surrounds it and that's why I would definitely say watch this with a double bill of the documentary if you can stomach the full four hours break it up I mean it's Netflix oh yeah you, watch, you, you could have a night's sleep in the middle no one's going to you could know. watch it in 24 10 minute blocks you could do whatever you want with that <laughs> yeah. you could do, you could just play around with that have a bit of fun yeah, yeah for me this is a movie that I uh, I heard that people have been waiting for yeah. I wasn't waiting for it myself you, well Ross is being very polite here I ranted about it over lunch a while ago and Ross had to slow me down and say, I don't think I even know what you're talking about. And you're talking about it as if you're telling me I've got an, another brother or something. <laughs> yeah. Like, why am I not more excited? Yeah. But I, but Ross, I, I'm but your brother. Once I had caught up, I was very excited. And, and, and once Tom's told you about it now and given you the context, then so will you be, dear listener. Oh. So um, Orson Welles, as you may well know, uh, was a uh, filmmaker, raconteur, writer, director amateur magician, um, who originally sort of came to prominence in the uh, late 30s uh, as a very talented young guy, set up the Mercury uh, Radio Company, which uh, Richard Linklater made a wonderful film about called Me and Orson Welles. I don't know if you remember that with Zac Efron and Christian McKay. Yeah. And he was, the first thing he did that he was kind of a real note that he was famous for was he did a broadcast of War of the Worlds where he managed to basically trick the public into thinking it was uh, an emergency broadcast and that New Jersey was really being taken over by aliens. He was then given an unprecedented uh, three-movie deal with, uh, I think it was with RKO, and it was with RKO, and his first film was Citizen Kane, which to this day is argued, and many people, will, many lists, sight and sound, the AFI, uh, the American Film Institute, most years have put it as the greatest movie ever made. He made that at 25. Wrote, 25 Wrote years it, old. directed it, and starred in it. And he mm. plays a guy in it from the age of 20, mm. I think, until 80. And it's an incredible performance, and it's an incredible film. And actually... When you go back to it, it's a relief. It's one of those things. It's a relief to say I personally, every time I go back and every time I catch a bit of it, it stands up. It, there's a reason people mm-hmm. said the way the camera moves around, the the energy of it, just as a piece of entertainment, let alone incredible cinema. It seems so ahead of its time. Unfortunately, what happened is whilst that film was nominated for many Oscars and was made him a very esteemed director. It lost an awful lot of money. His second film that he made the next year, The Magnificent Ambersons, uh, ran about $600,000 over budget. In the end, ended up coming about $2 million. And whilst he was away making a sort of public uh, information film, his film got taken away from him. They reshot the ending. They cut everything out because the only way he was allowed to go so over budget was he gave away Final Cut. And basically, he has said, he said a lot after that, that that was his Waterloo, that from that moment, he was a nomad in Hollywood. And it created this idea of him as incredibly artistically ambitious, but difficult to work with. He wouldn't finish films. He'd go madly over budget. And then basically for the rest of his days, until he died, I think in 85, I mean, this is a long creative life this guy led. He was very much a nomad. And it's interesting to try and imagine who he would be 
in the 90s or now when things, you know, when companies like Miramax started to exist or A24 now. But this really was a guy that used to sit in a restaurant called Mamaison in Hollywood and just try and charm people for bits of money. And you'll, a lot of people now in the sort of meme generation will know him as the guy from the Paul Maison champagne commercials. Ah, <laughs> oh, Paul Maison champagne. That's cool. We should definitely put a link of that because it's I so will. brilliant. I will. It is so brilliant. Oh, and actually, it's not sad because when you watch this film, this was a man that as an artist was pranking people and fighting and pushing the boat out creatively until mm. the very end. Now, this film, really quick to say this film, apparently he was a friend of Hemingway. Mm. And this film is, the basic plot of this film is about a director on his 70th birthday who's past his prime trying to finish his last film and get funding for it. And the film is called The Other Side of the Wind. And the film uh, that we are watching is filmed almost entirely from documentary footage of journalists filming the 70th birthday party at this Hollywood party of this guy whilst he's trying to screen the film, whilst we also cut back to clips of said film. And the guy is played by the legendary director John Huston, who is a friend of Orson Welles. And we'll talk about this in a minute, how much of a biopic it was. We don't know, but also clearly, and there were a lot of references to Hemingway. Mm. He's a very macho guy. And actually, Orson Welles had originally written a script called Sacred Beasts in the late 60s. Wow. That was about a movie director that made started making a film about matadors and started to fall in love with the matadors. While his girlfriend at the time and his co-writer on this film, Odja Kodar, had written a story about a director sleeping with actors' girlfriends so that he could get closer to the actor. Again, this idea of the sort of a repressed homosexuality in these very masculine, macho circles. Yeah, just to, it's interesting to jump in and say that given that he did, in a really peak uh, 2018 gripe, do a pretty impressive thing at 25 and make the greatest film of all time. It's really comforting as we go on with the story to hear what an awful time he had afterwards. Because, you know, otherwise, we, everyone would do, okay, how do we compete with that? How do we keep up with that? But Absolutely. he really brought it back by having a completely awful life afterwards. Well, and it's, well, what's incredible <laughs> about him is how revered he was at the beginning by other directors and other filmmakers. And this is what the film ends up being about. Ends up being the tension between the fact that hipsters love him. Mm-hmm. You know, film students, younger actors, younger directors, auteurs, and in the film, it's, you're watching this, but he cannot get arrested. The cronies of Hollywood, the money, where the power is, they don't want to know. And he's between a rock and a hard place in that sense, mm-hmm. which, of course, is was Orson Welles' story for the mm-hmm. last three decades of his, no, th- four decades of his professional life. Mm-hmm. But also, the protege in this movie is played by Peter Bogdanovich, mm-hmm. who was famously uh, was heralded as the new Orson Welles in the 70s when he made, and he was obsessed with making his first great film before he was 25, which he did, mm. with The Last, Last Picture, Picture Show. With Sybil Shepherd, uh, who he went on to be his partner as well. Went on to be his partner, because also, I mean, the, the adulation that is heaped on Orson Welles, and I first really started to know about I mean, I studied film 20 years ago, and this was the real holy grail, that he had made this mad, sprawling project that he shot with his own money on and off between 1970 76, that there were all these rumours about what had happened to it, whether the Iranian revolution in 1979 had meant that it was locked in a vault somewhere and they couldn't get to it, which apparently ended up being the truth. <laughs> you know, for example, Magnificent Ambersons, which I mentioned, his second film that, that never quite was. Martin Scorsese was going to remake in the early 90s Magnificent Ambersons with his original script using Robert De Niro in a series of his kind of regular actors. So Robert De Niro wouldn't be Robert De Niro. He would be William Holden playing blah, blah, blah. He wouldn't even be Robert De Niro playing. William Friedkin, who was Shelley Lansing, I think, with his wife, who, uh, was it Warner's? I think, was it the Warner's lot? 
he was obsessed with the Magnificent Amazons and went on a sort of mad crusade to try and track it down. And that's what you get when you watch this documentary with this film together, is you get this idea of a man who is such a sprawling talent. Uh, I wouldn't say inconsistent. We'll come to that in a minute. But I would he can't help... You know, his last famous completed project, probably that people remember, is F is for Fake. He is a grand prankster, I would say. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing, despite that, and when you watch the documentary about how difficult this guy made his own life, it seemed, but also how he appeared to be cursed after that early, that early sort of burst of genius, just the adulation from other Hollywood filmmakers towards him meant he could do no wrong, to the point where this film, which is a pretty mad film, <laughs> if anyone else had made this now, like mm. I was thinking about Knight of Cups, the... Um, uh, Terrence Malick movie. Terrence Malick yeah. movie, which is like a somber version of this, but without mm. the humour. I haven't seen that. Is it worth watching that one? So, uh, some people are big fans of, of, of Malick 2.0, the Malick regeneration, yes. which started with Tree of Life and then went to Knight of Cups and Song to Song. Yes. And, and some people have got their real favourites in that, but I, I honestly haven't delved into any of it because I love Badlands and Thin Red Line so much that I just thought, I, and I heard it's not pretty. all great stuff, but I'm very excited to watch Tree of Life in particular. Tree of Life is, is magnificent, actually, mm. and, it, and it tests you. Like mm. this film tests you. I mean, there's some mm. periods of, of, of incredible tedium there were for me during this film. <laughs> but by the time it rolls around and it has a fantastic ending, by the time that sort of director by Orson Welles comes up, I thought, that's just pure fucking cinema. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an incredibly... Anyway, we should talk about the actual movie itself. Well, exactly. There's a bit of background context It's a you. beautiful bit of context. And it, it tells you that what we've got here is something that's part uh, the culmination of a life's work, part mm. possible ma- masterpiece, yes. part treasure hunt, which has sort of led us uh, circuitously to this film, which we should probably review just as a film, because I think most of other reviews I've heard about it uh, talk yes. about it in the context of this mosaic of styles and I think it deserves history. to be reviewed as a movie. And I, and I really think that. And that's Although, of course, we have the, yeah. what it does maybe should be borne in mind is the fact that you are watching something where he had shot the footage. Supposedly he'd shot the complete footage. 100-odd hours. And Bob, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Morawski? Yeah, the uh, editor. Yeah, the editor who was a guy who's a big cult film fan who won the Oscar for Hurt Locker was the guy that was charged with the task of, you know, something like 100 hours of footage and 1,100 cans of films Mm. labeled things like Midget Party 5 and things. He had no (laughs) idea. But he had left Bogdanovich these notes. Mm. Oh, we should also say about that one of the things that's fantastic about Peter Bogdanovich moving through it is they made it from 7076. So John Huston who, for all of the, you know, incredible films, we also forget he made things like Annie. He was a real one for himself, one for the studio kind of director. Absolutely. He did the thing Orson Welles couldn't do, as they mentioned in the documentary. Absolutely. And he, was a, he could completely play the game, John Huston, who, who is a screen presence we probably know from Chinatown. Yes. A lot of people would, would know him. That's as, that, as, I as think that so, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what's really interesting but, about that? Yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, I was just saying, mm-hmm. but it means that Bogdanovich and Houston yeah. playing the two other main roles yeah. in this yeah. were were taking time out of much more successful <laughs> yes, directorial exactly. careers over six years yeah. to come back and play with the part improvised. Although, 
not as improvised, it turns out, as people suspected, mad Orson Welles, potentially never-ending project. You mm. got the impression that when they were making it, no one was entirely sure if this thing was ever going to see the light. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, sorry. And, and, and almost as if uh, part of it, people have speculated, his great joke this, in this movie mm. uh, might be that he never wanted to finish it. And he wondered whether it might be finished after his demise or, or, or whatever. It's very difficult to know because so many themes in it are about not getting to your artistic zenith and not revealing pro- your dreams and yes. the process and never the process, ending. And the know. process being, yeah. being the thing, ultimately. Yeah, exactly. And that thing you need, that would destroy you or is the wonderful thing and the thing that is the most difficult to enjoy but must be grasped and enjoyed if you possibly can. I mean, what's brilliant about this, I think, is that when I, you, I hear things like sort of Midget Party uh, 5, I, I feel like we're going to get a much more avant-garde movie than, to me, we actually got. And it's a really interesting movie and it's, it's yes. got strange bits in it. But... I'll tell you what, there is a classicism about everything he does. And he talks in the documentary about you never, you, you won't see a film like this one. And yet, in some ways, I think he's talking about technical things. He's not talking about this is going to be so out there. It's constant just sort of midgets dancing on well, naked women. Well, this staccato editing, a style yeah. that now we were more versed in than I think you would have been back yeah, then. Yeah, exactly. So really, what he's t- a lot of what he's talking about is, is some storytelling and some technical innovations that could, hadn't been done. So he was the guy that brought in deep focus in uh, mm. Citizen Kane, which is a sort of brilliant way to mm. tell the story because you could see everything in shots, you know, and he could tell the story completely visually. And here at feels like the editing is leading the way as the sort of pioneering thing he's doing because you see this sort of almost French New Wave sort of cinema verite, very 70s essentially, but going much further than even a lot of those very raw 70s paranoia Now, do you mean the, the film The Other Side of the Wind that I, I, the director no, I, is I, showing within the movie or do no, you mean the movie I, itself? I think the movie itself yeah, is very, I, very much a, a bold film. Yeah, and oh, I, th- I think yeah. that's the uh, a technically bold film and that is the dichotomy. Is I think he's trying to show something that believes itself to be bold in this film within a film but isn't it's it's a little bit stayed and I was it's about not quite to say, what yeah. he wants it to what not quite what it should be I mean, it has inflections of people talk about european cinema i wonder whether uh, him just having a go at european directors is probably a bit of a red herring i think he, he in a way he's targeting all cinema form. He's targeting sort of the 70s directors of the time who were getting a lot of praise for sort of uh, no plot or unusually plotted uh, movies. Well, actually, I think this movie is fairly conventionally plotted, in a manner of speaking. Yes, I think you're right. I mean, it uses a, a, a series of pundits and reviewers as a kind of Greek chorus who, you know, in a lot of ways... Is a, a, a real safety net to letting you know what's always going on. I mean, it doesn't mean that they they are essentially a collage or a scrapbook of sort of witty lines uh, about random things, but they're also telling you the story. They are keeping you with this this story that physically moves a lot. I mean, this is a story that often cuts to scenes in a car as it's driving along, or, or, uh, or, or loads of scenes of movement and walking, almost like an Aaron Sorkin way. You are being told that. Don't worry, we're getting somewhere. Mm. And for the ADD generation we're in now, the fast cuts do keep it such a sort of lively movie, which is shot through with all this uh, sort of, I guess, of the time and even now, we understand free jazz to be something yes. where it's going, don't worry, we're getting somewhere. Fun little thing here. It's, it is saying, this is a bit free, we get it. 
but we're going somewhere. And that that's the part of the movie which I thought was actually really well handled. Because when you yeah. hear this is going to be someone's magnum opus, you think, oh, this might be so wild, I'm really going to have to get into a different headspace to enjoy it. But that's what I... But, but also, it feels like the film within the film is yeah. the film you'd expect to be yes, someone's magnum opus. I think that's true. This is what I will leave you with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. These, these images cut out of stone, you know, yeah, 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 cut yeah, yeah. out of stone. And what's so fantastic is... The sense of humour he has mm. a, about all of it. I mean, mm. all of it. It's all utterly futile. It's all pure vanity. It's all smoke and mirrors. And yet, there are moments, just to prove he can, mm. there are moments where he delves... There's a bit where they delve into the actual film within the film for about 11 minutes straight mm. with this incredible... This one incredible scene where it cuts to... So the film within the film, is it's kind of... It's a little bit, again, Antonioni, Godard... But it's a little like a Buddha Suf or something like that, Breathless, yeah. the, the sort of... Uh, the there's a... You know, there's, there's yeah. A, yeah, and there's a woman and she's trying to find a good-looking guy and there's a lot of mirrors, and mm. which in itself feels like it's riffing famously on Citizen Kane and a lot of the stuff with the mirrors that he did. Yeah. But crucially, what's great is every time it appears to get a little bit pompous, somebody in the in the movie outside that, the one we're part of, the mm. you know, looking in, will point, will punch at that, will kind of punch at <laughs> yeah. that pomposity. Until actually, also at the same time, by the last third, it does slow down, it does find its feet, and it does reveal that there is some real melancholy there. There's really some stuff of substance. I thought what it ends up being about is this director who's fucking knackered. He mm. cannot win. Mm. He's trying to, you know, these all these old men who are trying to be at the cool party, but they're exhausted, mm. and everyone's an asshole. There's a great line. I wish I could remember exactly what it was. Something about they've got a mariachi band, a gypsy man. All these mm. assholes want to do is talk about themselves or something. There's this uh, someone uh, in a review uh, compared it to a David Niven story in his book, The Moon's a Balloon. Yes, I end, read this. Yes, he sort of re- he, he uh, what happened is Niven was told that he wasn't cool. Now he was by cool. Some at hipster, party, some beatnik, yeah. And the only thing you're worth now is to maybe give me money for my new project. Well, that's. I think the guy and said something like, yeah. you know, you're a relevant man. You've got to realise you've got to get out of the way. And then the guy went after a while, listen, can you stump up some bread? Because I've got this idea about doing it, you know. Wait, and, and there is that strange... I mean, of course, Wells as a character and the central character he has created for this movie sit in an odd place where they're not so much irrelevant as, as in a funny way, have never really realised what they believe is their potential and yet are completely adored. Uh, all these people around them, this chorus of pundits and this Again, which, fawning other filmmakers makers, you know, which which is completely on And you can't ignore the parallel wants. with Wells. Yeah, you can't yeah, exactly. ignore the fact that Bogdanovich came back after making The Last Picture Show. And there's an awful bit, and there's a very t- tragic uh, segment in the Morgan Neville documentary that goes with it, where... Uh, he was living with Bogdan- Bogdanovich and Sybil Shepherd on off for three years whilst cutting bits of this movie. Mm. And then he throws him under the bus. He goes on a talk show with Burt Reynolds. And I tried to look into that, because they don't really describe... It's incredibly... Cr- you yeah, know, what, he, what happens here? So... So there's a bit in the documentary, which I know you've seen, but obviously people mm. won't have yet necessarily if they're listening to this and they're, and they're keen to, um, where they talk about, but, you know, he stays with Bogdanovich. He's, he's trying to make an unwanted film. house guest. He's an unwanted house time. guest. You know, yeah. he's a big man and he's a big personality. Yeah. And I can't imagine he sits in the court. Quite, I doubt you're going to get home and he's going to go, mm. I tidied up for you. Like, he's, <laughs> he's not no, I think guy. there are literally rooms Sybil Shepherd, whose house it was, wasn't allowed to go I in. covered that room in blood. <laughs> yeah. He'd say things Don't like that. Don't go in there. Yeah. 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 I've done something Terrible. I light a match. Uh, no, it wasn't that kind of thing. But yeah, and, but, and he goes on this talk show with with Burt Reynolds. With say? Burt Reynolds, yeah. who he was a very close personal friend of, and I know this because I ended up going on a weird journey where on YouTube I watched the pilot show of the Orson Welles talk show in 1979, <laughs> which was a little bit like the David Letterman long form one at the moment, where he talks to somebody for an hour, and mm. the pilot episode is him and Burt Reynolds, and he's mm. talking to Burt Reynolds about Burt Reynolds' directing career. 
which I really couldn't work out if that, again, the whole thing was a piss take. You never quite know with Orson Welles. Mm. Yeah. But uh, with, with Bogdanovich, apparently what actually happened was there was a, a script that he made called Saint Jack that he made in 79. It was originally going to be made a couple of years earlier with uh, Jack Nicholson in it. And he had Bogdanovich, I think originally he'd become friends with Wells because he idolized him like a lot of other directors of that era. Mm. I th- I, he was a film historian. He is a film historian. And he had written a book about Wells' uh, films, I think, mm. particularly Citizen Kane, Imagine Touch of Evil, the mm. more acclaimed ones, uh, Chimes of Midnight. Mm. And they'd become friends and then they'd ended mm. up sort of working together. But also what that meant is he then became involved in the financing of the film and trying to help him with all these things. Mm. And uh, there had been a legal case with Sybil Shepherd in, and they dropped this case so that they had the money to move on uh, St. Jack. And the idea was that I think he was going to be involved in the production and Wells was going to make it. And Wells kept faffing around. Mm. He kept the, 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 the I think the option on the script was going to expire. Mm. They had Jack Nicholson. He then wanted Dean Martin or mm. something. So really how's he thrown under that. the bus in this thing? So basically... In the end, Bogdanovich made St. Jack. He just couldn't. He was uh, going to okay. lose it, and Wells never forgave him. And so uh. what he did is he went on this chat show, as you see in the documentary, and they're joking about, you know, what a pain in the arse he is and all this stuff. And it says he wrote him this letter. This, this is a guy who idolizes him. And, of course, mm. the film is about an older director and his protege and the protege surpassing his mentor. Yes, yeah, yeah. Very much what ended up effectively happening during that mm. time. Mm. And no one could have known that as well. Mm. That's the other thing. No one could have known that Peter Bogdanovich, halfway through this shoot, would be a much more esteemed and acclaimed director, you know, that it would, you know. And he throws him under the bus and then he he wrote to Orson Welles and he said, um, I turned on the other, TV, the other TV the other day, see what you thought of me, and I found out. And Orson Welles did an incredibly cruel thing. He wrote him two letters together one that said i'm so so sorry and blah 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 blah, and the other one telling him why he said that and then he said you choose which letter you want to believe <laughs> wow that's great which is kind of amazing and then it, but clearly it's haunted bogdanovich bogdanovich famously also Ma- the mask in 1985 i think was his last big movie oh yeah mask yeah not not, not the, the mask, mask. Not, okay. yeah yeah mask the A-R-T-Y, with, because i got her yeah, yeah Cher and eric stoltz movie yeah mask, yeah. yeah not the one with uh, cameron diaz in the rain <laughs> yeah, which is tattooed right. onto the inside of my skin Skull. I remember As thinking a that was year old boy. That when I saw Not the mask, tattooed, that'd be weird. That'd be yeah. The mask was the best film ever. I think when I, when I first <laughs> when I first saw it, I did think that mask was quite a harrowing one, wasn't it? Quite a harrowing film, but and but also he I think had a lot of his own personal problems. And yeah. so I read, I tried to see what Bogdanovich had said about the other side of the wind being created, because of course he ended up being executive producer. Mm. And on top of everything, even though their f- friendship fell apart, pursuing this thing for decades. And uh, he said, uh, it feels like the end. And, he, and, I, and the guy the interview mm. says, well, you know, of Orson Welles, a fitting, he went, no, no, the way he expresses at the end about filmmaking. And this, I wish I, I meant to mm. look it up before. This is a great line at the end. John Huston says, maybe I shouldn't say, actually. Maybe mm. it's just as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a great little coda at the end. There's a great sign-off. And it is yeah. very Hemingway-esque, yeah, 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 isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I bet maybe it's just as well. Yeah. I can't remember because it, it, it's, it's real. Yeah. But he means the end doesn't, oh, that's the end of... Because there's a thing about which is which is fine and it's great with grand old people in in cinema and in the arts. Yes. When they're getting older, they pronounce that's the end of art. People can do that Abs- a bit, don't abso- they? Uh, absolutely. Or they yeah. say, you know, older actors can go. Well, young actors they yes, don't get it. It felt like a younger man's like, film, though. Yeah, Isn't that it, also it did. What we're that's saying? the odd thing. It, it had it, a real fury yeah. to it. It feels, and he was 55 when he started working on it, I think. And it, what uh, uh, Wells? Uh, Wells, I think. 
I might be wrong about that. But he, uh, but it's, it's got this weird vibrancy, which yeah. is to do with him never having been fulfilled, I think. Still thinking of himself, oh, God, if it, they'll really get me with the with this one. Of course, the, I thought it was going to be quite torturous to watch a movie which he mm. said, I'm making as my masterpiece. You know, it, much easier, I think to watch a movie by a 25-year-old genius who turns out to have made a brilliant, brilliant film and now the name Orson Welles is synonymous with the word brilliant and the best filmmaker in the world, that sort of thing. The, the, Much harder to watch a movie, I thought, yes. where, where he's he's telling you it's going to be But then brilliant. when you see him say that in the documentary, mm. you can see he does it with a twinkle in his mm. eye and there's a bit where Bogdanovich chats about an interview I read with him and he said, I found it heartbreaking. I went and sat with him in this restaurant, my maison, he sat mm. on every day and really every lunch he'd have, he was... Busking, he was mm. trying to get. He's panhandling. He was yeah, trying to get a bit of money out of everybody. For you know, he used to walk around with a tape recorder and a camera in a suitcase mm. because he was constantly filming about five different projects on the go at any given time. Mm. Which yes, is very romantic, but not really when you consider it's the guy that did make Sid and Kane with his yeah. twenty-five and could still cobble together something as impressive as this. Yeah, well, and again, this it, is to go back to the the content of it. This is an impressive movie. There's mm. a, I do think there's a there's a feel of the sort of art movie about it. There are even moments in it where I, would, I just thought, you know, any student, particularly from like the 50s, say, to now, could put that movie up with no sound and go, wow, that's a beautiful bit of filmmaking. That's a beautiful mm. bit of art. It's photographed so fantastically. It goes from black and white to colour, different frame sizes. But while it's doing all of it, it only takes you about five, ten minutes to completely get into the zone, I think, of what mm. it's doing. So. And then just sheerly, sheer, just as a sheer spectacle, you look at it and you go, that is, that's very cool. It's not a difficult watch, I don't think. I mean, when, once you get into the sort of middle part of the movie it maybe needs another sort of trick to play because that's the point where you talked about tedium, I think, where you start to go, okay, how long are we going to play this game well, of this I, beautiful, but also again, fast it, cut thing? It does, it does begin, and it began in my mind, a guessing game of what, how close would the would Wells's edited version have been to this one, like you say, mm. and I think it might have been even more out there. Mm. But I also think he was famous, you know, like they would talk about Amazon's how it got cut. He would call people up and go, we're removing the middle 25 minutes. He wasn't a bore, I would mm, say. I think no, if anything, no, no. he's always wanted to keep you on your toes. Yeah. And there was this, he was having this relationship with, was she Croatian? Or, um, uh, Oja Kodar, oh, who co-wrote yeah. it, his girlfriend, who mm. kind of plays the heroine, the film within the film. This is sort of references to her being a Red Indian, which is, again, one of the many things that just yes. slightly dates it. There Also, there are some things that date it, and yeah. a lot of stuff has been talked about, the homophobia and the, uh, the misogyny of it. Mm. But at the same time, I still get the impression that Wells is saying these are homophobic, misogynistic characters. I totally I, I really don't yeah. think and he's other, putting yeah. them forward as yeah. men of the year. I do think he's very in control of it, and we can only speculate what he would have intended and what his final, final cut would have been if he ever imagined there would have been one. Well, but well, yes. the, the, the interesting thing that I feel, one critique point I would make of it, when you look at a movie like Citizen Kane, of which it is similar in the way it uses mystery. Like, you're you're very mm. clear at the start of this movie that there is, it still has a, almost a thriller format, a pace to it where there is something hidden at the heart of the central character, and we may or may not find out what is the driver of him, or what is the missing thing that he has. And then what we get uh, as the movie goes on is I think where, where a movie like Citizen Kane uh, has its why he would struggle to live up to a movie like that is because fundamentally, even though such a brilliant filmmaker, it, there are moments which pale in comparison because of the visual storytelling yes. uh, of something like Sense and Kane. It's always just 
showing you. Whereas there is a little bit of tell in the in the show don't tell of this movie I think there's a little bit on the other side of the wind where he's using those mouthpiece characters the pundits at times to shout out the sort of what's really going on <laughs> for for the sort of hard of thinking you you go yeah. oh well of course this bit's about oh I know I understand you mister you're you're all about this and there are moments when I'm sure he must have been thinking 10 years into editing it is this progressive and postmodern or Am I just not telling the story well enough without having people shouting out the meaning? But, but, that, but you would also you could argue that had he got man, uh, managed to get hold of the footage in the early eighties, mm. six seven years after he shot mm. it, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he. You're right. He'd go well. It's not. I mean, and he'd keep shooting. Yeah. I don't think he'd be able to edit it and finish it and put it over there mm. six days later. He'd start going. Okay. Well, what am I? How am I twisting the knife now? Mm. How am I, but I guess what I was going to ask about uh, say about Oja Koda is apparently she had as the writer, artistic rights to this and had to clear a lot. Mm. And apparently she wanted a lot more of that film within the film put back in, which she directed bits of. Uh. He clearly had a weakness for her. And I, I couldn't help but feel when watching it that the film within the film wasn't a gag. It, it is beautiful. Mm. I think it is, you know, like there is a lot of jokes. Apparently the, mm. the, the what's the, the name of the Antonioni movie? Is it Zabriskie Point? How do you, yeah, that's right. Yeah. He, you know, the, the house that they blow up at the end of Zabriskie Point the house that they have this pool party in, that they have this great Hollywood party mm. in full of all these directors, Dennis Hopper and John Ford pops up with an eye patch at one point and yeah. everybody's there. Um, is the house next door to the one that, that you know, yeah. so that he, he knows what he's doing. There are sort of very niche games being played of yeah. which we, we're not aware. I no, think. and I also yeah. think back if it had come out in 77, mm. we people would have been, you know, indie film fans would have been roaring in the arse uh, that yeah, much yeah. more yes. at all these little digs. I, I think that's the interesting thing because she, you know, her presence in the film, in, in the film, she's pretty magnetic. I think she's really great on screen. Oh, absolutely, yeah. She, she talks in, in oh. just to sort of see over to they'll love me when I'm dead she talks a little bit about uh, how she brought the sex of, of the yes movies. which he didn't yeah and and it, it, she, there is a sort of blooded sort of sen- full-blooded sense in that movie there is a sort of even though it is a, a, a bit of a pastiche perhaps like when she's on screen it's pretty interesting and it's pretty unlike in the way that Wells intended an awesome Wells film and I think yes. that works a, 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 about it really well uh, and I think it's this is all very well dissected uh, by the uh, they'll love me when I'm dead movie which I saw some criticism of and of course we've talked about uh, the sort of strange uh, use of Alan Cumming as a sort of Dennis Norden star presenter. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, but uh, but I, th- I think it works really well. And it's, there are shades of... Uh, there's a great documentary called Listen to Me Marlon, which is pulled together by uh, Marlon Brando. Uh, tapes of Marlon Brando yes. speaking to himself uh, to try and hypnotise himself. Seen I've seen it. It's a great I really movie. Like to see that. And, and I think in a similar way, they collage together uh, clips which give you, which tell you about what you need to know about it, uh, even while a voiceover might be telling you something slightly different and you're getting this cinema verite images. But they all hang together in a really great way that is, is not didactic, that informs you about what's going on and the key players that you'll need to keep hold of, of which is quite a few in this oh, story. Oh, goodness, yeah. But it, it, but it yeah, does that, Shah I think, very Iran is, And his brother-in-law <laughs> is a rather yeah. important part. But it, it, it does that really, really smart, in a really brilliant way. And I, and I, and I in terms of documentary, I'm, this is also... It, this same director also made uh, 20 Feet from Stardom, which is the, th- the film that oh, yes. won the Oscar about backing singers, which I think in a lot of ways I think is a very conventional form of documentary making. It's not, I don't really like talking heads. I don't really like uh, sort of past tense documentary in a lot of ways. 
But what he finds here is a way by using that old footage to make it present tense. And I think it suits the format of what he's trying to do so well. I think that's why I thought thought that documentary was I just think for any film fan, it's incredibly like... And actually, by the end of it, it had me itching to go and pick up a camera. It sells you the kind of rock and roll, guerrilla style of what it is to be an artist who never quite reaches satisfaction, who's never quite acknowledged. Mm. And, And it's the tears of a clown because you sort of... He can't help, even when he's professing how isolated and lonely as a, he is as an artist through this guy. Every, you know, he made a point going, it's not me, it's not me. You know, the, the, he said one of the greatest things I've ever done is to give that part to John Huston. Mm. But clearly there was, he needed something. Oh, by the way, the story mm. of him meeting uh, or, um, uh, Hemingway is that yeah. he was doing, apparently, it's a great thing, you can look it up, where he's talking about there was a documentary about the Spanish Civil War that Hemingway was making with a friend. And they wanted Orson Welles to do the um, uh, the narration. Mm. And so they, they were in a studio with a picture showing of all this footage playing from this memoir. And, um, uh, and he said he made some suggestions. And apparently this guy said, you know, and he, excuse, I'm going to use this word because it's got massive glowing neon quotation marks around it. And also remember the time. <laughs> and also remember the fact that Orson Welles then, much as this guy became his friend, made a film later on years, his last ever film, which sort of implies that if it is about Hemingway, Hemingway and a lot of these tough men's men's mm. kind of live on a ranch, do a lot of shooting. You mm. might be saying like Peter Berg would be the equivalent now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, seem to be protesting a little bit too much about their masculinity, mm. i.e., there might be some sort of uh, hidden homosexuality there. Mm. Uh, 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 Hemingway called him a faggot, mm. and, he, and they had a fight. No, oh, no, mm. sorry. So Orson Welles went, "Oh, Mr. Hemingway, you're so big and so strong," <laughs> and he start and he did the rest of the narration in that voice, <laughs> sort of flirting with him, going, "Oh God, you're such a brute!" And, all this. Mm. and eventually, the guy came in, and they went at each other, they had to pull them apart. And of course, Orson Welles, who's so good at turning anything into an idea, says, "Can you imagine the two of us juking it out with footage of the, Sp- the Spanish Civil War being projected onto us? <laughs> what one man on another man? What could be more uh, enticing? That's uh, what more like women in love could it be?" It's like well, ex- two masculine blokes having a go at each other in front of a roaring fire. Well, apparently that's what he said. He said his friendship became that, you know, Hemingway really had this crew around him, this macho crew. And he said he had a great sense of humour about himself because he put himself in this corner of being the man's man. Yeah. And his his writing kind of conveyed that. And it was so tough and lean and functional. Mm. But he said, you know, I, my job, our friendship was that I would make fun of him. I would make fun of it. Like, mm. hey, you know, you're not, you know, you're great yeah. big whoopsie. That sort of yeah. thing. And actually one of the greatest scenes, I don't want to start talking about it too much because it's mm. later in the film, is when you start, was when John, there's a character who's, I can't even think who he's probably based upon. Do you remember there's another filmmaker who's like, well, let me give a pop, oh, a pop yeah, at him and all that exactly, sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And anyway, there's a bit where he humiliates this teacher that belongs, because actually there's a bit to do with the actor goes missing and it's, he can't finish the film. So he's depressed at the same time as being celebrated. Mm. And there's an, an excruciating scene where he, puts this man in a chair and sort of interrogates him mm. about, you know, and he again uses that horrible word, the slur I just used, the homophobic slur I just used towards him. And it's sort of rich in that. And it's... It's a power play. It's a mm. very dark sort of, you know, it comes from all sorts of traditions of cinema. It's a bit Pinteresque. It's a bit whatever, you know. It's, it's one man sort of denigrating another man slowly and meticulously and horribly in front of our eyes, you know. But it also, again, I feel like I was trying to say this about um, uh, David Lynch the other mm. day. Like, David Lynch knows how to build a chair. Yeah. As in, I guess what I, I think, yeah. I hope what it came across, what I was trying mm. to say is he really understands how narrative works. He really understands how to lead an audience, you know, in shot mm. composition and mise-en-scene. And 
you know, in terms of the form, he is a master of it, and he's no, not mother. He is a student of it, and mm. he is a great respecter of it. Which means he also knows he doesn't contrive to make some sort of backwards mad sort mm. of topsy turvy film. He knows how to pull those parts, you know, and reassemble them. And Wells proves in this he does as well, because in the last third, and I do think if you, I a friend of mine said, oh, he just couldn't get through it, and I knew I had to get, I wanted to get through it anyway, mm-hmm. and I found it electric. Even when I found it testing, I thought I haven't seen a film like this yeah. in a long time, if ever. Mm. But by the third, the last third, when it ends up being much more these men in a room at this party, these old, tired men, surrounded by all these hipsters and all of this noise, knowing that they're just done, Mm. it settles into there's there's some there's some great scenes, there's some great old school acting and and some some real dramatic tension I think that comes out of it. Yeah, I think what's what's really great at that very end of the movie it was it was a complete accidental moment for me is that I thought wow they've in, they've also laid on the sound of like a much more modern film a very sort of urban sort of sounding movie that's sort of playing right through that final scene and then keeps on going over the credits and I realised I had another movie up on the browser. <laughs> I literally had another movie playing behind it, so I had to watch the last five minutes really? again. Really? Oh my really, God, he's done it again. <laughs> it really worked. I mean, I suppose it gives you a measure of how uh, strange this film is that it might be able to support that. You might be able but, to play a third movie yeah, in the background. <laughs> in the background, okay, oh yeah, this oh kind of works. God. But all of which is to say, I think as much as it is an experimental thing, as much as I think he was trying to deconstruct story, I think there's a large part of him that still was working towards something that expressed uh, something deep within him and as such I, I do find it by the end a much more coherent endeavour than I thought it was going to be and for that reason alone I just think it stands up as a movie and, and one worth seeing for everyone I think yeah yeah I absolutely agree anyway well, the other thing I was going to say about which was really interesting you talk about uh, the film playing in the show by mistake when I watched a bit of this thing of uh, Orson Welles talking to Burt Reynolds in this pilot mm. that didn't get shown in the chat show he did he talks about how he always sees in the job of being a director as a man who presides over accidents. Yes, yeah, And exactly. I feel like maybe the way he lived his life for that nomadic last 20, 30, 40 years uh, lends itself to this kind of filmmaking. Mm. You couldn't contrive to. And what's wonderful is you can read all of these reports of the fact that um, uh, Frank Marshall, the producer of Back to the Future and uh, Indiana Jones and The Born Identity, was a production manager on this film and has now ended up being a producer. And again, shows how much, again, the... the uh, adulation, the, mm. the, the love that he inspired in people, that Frank Marshall, long after being Frank Marshall we know, and mm. apparently got fired every single week by Orson Welles. <laughs> and he would apparently just go and have a Coke and sit at the side of the set and wait for him to hear, and he goes, where the hell's Frank? he just wait for him to bellow it because he'd forget <laughs> that he'd fired him. Is the sort of love that they had for it. And, and uh, they had a rough print screening and they had Alexander Payne, Tarantino, um, Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson, yeah. I think it might have been. Um, and you do this. It doesn't. It still does not feel like a thing made by committee. It's no. still got this this authorship. Yeah. This authority. What am I trying to say? Uh, authorial voice. Thank you, authorial. Uh, That's what I was blushingly groping for. Yeah, yeah. It has this very clear authorial voice running through it. And I thought the saddest thing, but almost just so beautifully poignant, maybe to end on, is he, during the making of the film, and it's in the Melville documentary, uh, when he's trying to get together that last bit of cash, he gets given a Lifetime Achievement Award. 
And he goes, right, well, this is my opportunity. So he stands up and he gives this speech. The first half of the speech, he basically takes the piss out of Hollywood to their <laughs> face because he can't seem to help it. Mm. He just can't seem to help but just needle at things. Mm. And it's wonderful to watch. They need a little clip, and I ended up watching it on, on YouTube, and it's great. He really does. And he shows the two scenes, and I think, I can't remember which exactly, what the scene, it's a scene within the scene of the movie, and then he shows, um, oh, oh, that was it, sorry, it's a scene where they're all arguing over what the film's going to be. And everybody was enjoying it, got a lot of laughs from the room. And then the scene he shows is one right at the beginning, which is one of the the direct the main characters. What's the name of the John Hanford? Uh, Hannaford. Hannaford. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. The main character, John Hannaford's sort of uh, uh, acolytes, mm. sitting with a producer who's clearly supposed to be Robert Evans, mm. and who Robert Evans was Warner's, wasn't he? I that's think. right. Yeah. Robert Evans from the kids' days in the picture. And, um, you know, the the Vonda kid that kind of produced uh, all sorts of films, Chinatown, mm. um, Godfather, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. And it's him sitting watching this difficult movie that this guy's coming out with, whilst there's a load of jokes about, well, you know, he makes it all up as he goes along. Or the guy, because it seems like he's making up his gun, he's done it before. <laughs> and of course, he, why would you choose that scene? Because it's so close to the image and uh, of what if, who Orson Welles was and probably was mm. amongst the sort of money men of Hollywood mm. that he does himself in. And actually, the irony being that scene apparently was scripted. Most of the script, mm. most of the movie was scripted. Mm. And there's something sort of so beautifully poignant about the fact he had this opportunity using a lifetime achievement and being able to show this. And he was hawking his wares at mm. a lifetime achievement award, and he still somehow blew it because mm. he can't quite help. He just can't toe the line. Mm. Well, that's the that's the thing, and that what's great about this movie is he, there is part of him that's sort of showing you his soul. This is my pain. This is who I am. And with a lot of filmmakers, that would either be pretentious, or you might look at their soul and go, oh, "It's not as complicated, or even uh, <laughs> arresting, or beautiful as it might be." But with Orson Welles, with all his complications and everything that is bound up in his name and his personality and who he is, it's a very enriching thing to see him uh, bear his soul a little bit. And I think. For me, that's exactly what he's doing in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I'd have let Orson Welles stay at my house for three years. I think he could get away with anything now. <laughs> so um, maybe yeah. we should move on to uh, Buster Scruggs. Yes. Scrubs? Scruggs. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. It's nothing to do with Scrubs. Would you like to take a little punt at, uh, at describing the... The, the plot of Buster Scruggs or the sort of the basic setup? Well, the basic setup is uh, a man rides into town called Buster Scruggs uh, and played by Tim Blake Nelson from Oh Brother Where Art Thou, amongst other Coen Brothers movies. Uh, and what we then get is a short story which seeks into other conne- uh, unconnected uh, short stories, um, which uh, form what's called a portmanteau film. Now, a portmanteau movie might be a collection of horror movies or thriller movies or, or movies on a theme. Sometimes they're made by all different directors, in this case, just made by the Coens. And then what we get is, is uh, diving into themes and scenarios and uh, bizarre situations and some mundane situations in uh, in the Old West. And it's a place we've been to uh, with the Coens before, but never quite like this. Yeah, and it's interesting that they've chosen to release it straight away on Netflix. It's the first film they've ever made on digital, I didn't realise. I can't mm-hmm. remember the name of the, of the cinematographer, but he was the gentleman that shot... Um, 
what was the brilliant Oscar Isaac film that they did? Inside Lewin Davis. Inside Lewin and Davis. he was a gentleman. Well, that's funny. Uh-huh. We'll start there because I think uh, there is a similarity in, uh, with Inside Lewin Davis. I think in this mm. movie, I think there is there is a you know I, I weirdly described it as a Thanksgiving movie because it's got so much existential angst. Therefore, probably misunderstanding what Thanksgiving's all about. But then uh, hey, I, I'm it's not, not for us anyway. <laughs> it's not for us. So we don't understand it. But there's there's a certain amount of, as as you get towards the end of the year or get towards Christmas. I think you, you, people sit in their homes and wonder. What does it all mean? And I think yeah. in their own way, I think in a movie like Inside Lewin Davis, it's uh, a movie about a not very well-known uh, musician uh, in the sort of Bob Dylan era uh, in the village playing folk music. Uh, Oscar Isaac plays a, the titular character. And it's about a guy never really finding what he's looking for, arguably. In this movie, we've got a series of people all on different sorts of journeys, and some of them may find what they're looking for, and often they don't, and not to give too much away. But there, there is a, a, a sort of looking into the abyss in this movie in a way that Coen Brothers, I don't think, have done before. I think that's what's exciting yes. about this. Because when you look at them, and you know, this could almost be seen as a bit of a sort of victory lap for them, because they've made right. all these great movies. Yes. They've, they've come back from what I think was not a great period, but some people love the movies Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty. I thought that was a little bit of a bad patch but still they came through it fairly easily they won Oscars post that they've done great movies and now they uh, seem to be able to make with Netflix and the great thing that Netflix does a movie that just they wanted to make and I think it's got some really unusual corners and they, really they feel bits. like they're having a lot of fun yeah and it's strange and some of it for me doesn't always hang together and some parts you'd go well I wouldn't have that story could have been shorter and maybe that bit should have just been longer or is it sort of looking at it like you know if, if we're talking about making a table like it's not a perfect table but actually, as the film gathers pace and one story, uh, one story sort of interacts a little bit with the other, you start going, well, maybe this is actually what the portmanteau film should be. It shouldn't be sort of a series of well-made short stories, but stories that don't feel quite like they all hang together until the last one where you go, oh, and that was what you were trying to say. Yeah, well, like, and I thought I felt like it was a sort of overview of a terrain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of a sort of physical terrain, like the Old West, but also a sort of psychological one. And also, arguably, maybe an overview of their different forms of filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. Because they have, like, they do shift and move. There's not only their eras of Coen Brothers, mm-hmm. I wouldn't even argue the eras. I would argue that they, it's as if they're, you know, they, they have five different modes and they flip between them where they see mm. fit, which, of course, with these six various tales of the Old West, they're able to do mm. every 20 minutes. I mean, I don't... See, I, I Hail Caesar, the film, which I think was their film yeah, before this. that's right. And I think we might have seen that. Yeah, we, so, did, yeah, yeah. we saw that one. Off and too. that's a wildly entertaining movie about old Hollywood. It's got, but very uh, episodic. But episodic, yeah. It's got sort of thrilling moments and uh, musical numbers and everything. But not not everyone's favourite Coen Brothers movie. But you know? but again, because I think it had some incredible set pieces. Yeah. The music numbers it had some wonderful characters. You know, they're. I mean, and from the beginning, this film reminds me of the, one of my favourite things is their gift for physical comedy mm. and mm-hmm. for sort of sight comedy. You know, for sort of visual comedy rather sight comedy. What they're like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Comedy for people that can see. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Just, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but for visual comedy and in their violence and in their humour and all of that mm-hmm. sort of, particularly the first story, Tim Blake Nelson, where he plays uh, mm. a, a Buster Scruggs, yeah. a sort of singing gunslinger, mm. who, which is an incredibly violent, but also uh, arguably the most comic. Mm, yeah, of, it is. Of, uh, yeah. In their way, um, and, and the you know, short films are synonymous with lots of different styles of things. You either get for me a, a short film that has a punchline 
or one that one where you don't feel it's fulfilled and then you have to sort of figure out what you think was really going on in that movie and what its message is. They do that in all, they go to all those different places, but the first story is very much a sort of, a kind of punchline. Punchline, uh, yeah. story. But then uh, I, also, I sometimes think that about, you know, you get, uh, like Ryan Johnson, maybe you might have sent it to me, I'm not sure, mm. but Ryan Johnson just did, uh, oh, sorry, Ryan Johnson and Quentin Tarantino uh, were the two that spent a lot of time finessing the, the, the final um, edit oh, wow. of The Other Side of the Wind. And apparently when they, the first, when they did the first rough screening, they had to turf them both out. They had to turf mm. them out of the cinema because they were still sitting there five hours later oh, wow. discussing it because they're both such complete Wells nuts. But anyway, Ryan Johnson, the director of of the last Star Wars movie, which I know he had a bit of, he got a bit of a kicking for, but I think possibly more because mm. of how it fell short of fans' expectations yeah. rather than mm. uh, as a filmmaker, as a piece of film, as a piece of cinema, and how well it made it was. But the director of Looper and the director of what was that great milk? Brick, 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 brick. milk. That's just a one-word title, brick. yeah. But it's brick, a brick, milk, <laughs> brick. You know, br- Hammer. brick, brick of milk, brick of milk, milky um, brick. Uh, but he made that great LCD. There's a great LCD sound system video at the moment, and it reminded me how. You can explore, you can nail a metaphor, you can nail a perfect little vignette. Sometimes there are certain ideas that exist, and it's the same when you read a book of short stories, that wouldn't, it's not that they wouldn't sustain themselves over two hours or however many hundred of pages, it's it's that they work better that way Mm. because they are more punchline-based or you can explore an idea possibly in a more uh, sort of... um, A sort of focused way, I guess. Thank you very much. A microcosm, you can sort of, but yeah. The the video is Oh Baby, uh, the LCD sound. Thank you very much. If you want to check it out. Uh, And it's got this sort of, just little sci-fi hook to it, which is, it's a really good piece of storytelling. And that's the thing you can do. I mean, Ethan Cohen is no stranger to this sort of thing because he wrote a book of short stories called Gates of Eden so he has form with this form uh, and he has uh, and I think you can see that I think you can see them not wanting to make another Netflix movie or make a movie that would be sort of easy for them to do they're trying to use the format I think to do something a bit different and I think that's why on first watch the stories don't feel uh, or may not feel to some people sort of perfectly made I mean, if you look at something like the Spanish uh, portmanteau movie uh, Wild Tales they're yes. increasingly uh, agitated stories about sort of a build up of tension and then the inevitable release yes. they've all got that sort of a hot blooded emotion tied to them and but, I think probably when you talk to anyone about it everybody remembers a different two stories of yes. the six yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. whereas this one I think consciously leaves each story just slightly unfulfilled so it can be so that gap can accumulate been filled be filled up by the other uh, stories. I mean, I think the the they feel unfulfilled in all sorts of different ways. With the James Franco story, which is the second one, I thought, oh wow, I could have I just could have stood longer on that story. Yeah. It's a real well balanced uh, tale of sort of action and jeopardy, you know. And I wanted a bit more of the jeopardy. When you get to the Tom Waits story, it's almost too well made. You're like, oh, I really thought we were going to get something even more unusual, or again, it could have been longer or something. But by the end. Uh, I, I do think you, it heads towards something which is about sort of uh, again sort of human jeopardy and, and human endeavour and how we we fall flat or we succeed and it felt by having those holes in those stories the cumulative effect was something a bit more uh, exacting and a bit more interesting than it might have been. Well, also, I don't, whether it works or not, I don't know, but they hit you They hit you with the surefire hits at the beginning, I'd say. Yeah. They hit you with the big star turns. Mm. They hit you with, the, not the gimmicks, but you say the pun- more punchline-based. Yeah. The physical comedy of the Tim Blake Mason one is followed by the one where mm. James Franco plays uh, a bank robber and I really, really was quite sad when we moved on from that. Yeah, and yeah, it puts exactly. you, it does put you in a full sense of security because there's a sort of, I don't know, I suppose at a minute I thought we should chat about 
possibly in a second, what, mm. for you, what makes a good Coen Brothers film? The ones Because mm. I think everybody has different favourites, mm. which is great. I mean, it really says a lot about their oeuvre, mm. that they've got so many to pick from and that people disagree so much over the ones they love. For example, I love Intolerable Cruelty, ah. and I've not yet met anyone else <laughs> that likes that film. I, I, I adore like Intolerable Cruelty. Oh, that's, no, I liked it. I thought it was very fun. But also then, what's possibly, you know, what makes a good Western? Because, he's a, you know, your, your father's Western is not the same as your Western, necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually... I do think they've ordered these in just the right way because there's a sort of creeping, there's a sort of lyrical romanticism of the. There's one with Liam Neeson and Harry. What's the name of the Harry Melling? Harry mm. Melling, which is about a travelling theatre company, mm. um, a, a two-man theatre company, and mm. it's incredibly sad. And it's all you know. It's set over a long, cold winter, mm. and it's very little dialogue. In fact, well, apart from when this this young boy is reading all of the, he, he kind of giving his speeches to sort of crowds of three people eating, mm. you know, hot dogs and not really giving a shit, <laughs> yeah. sitting on barrels. And that goes into some quite unsuspect places. And that, to me, felt like that could have been a feature. That's true. And, and I felt like its punchline is strangely similar to Orson Welles' punchline as well, yeah. that about the fate of an artist or the fate of was, a movie maker. But there seems, from what we've just been saying, quite a lot that ties these two movies. Mm. These, these are very seasoned filmmakers Mm. Um, having a lot of fun, yeah, like tr- you know, like really, really kind of mixing up the colours and mm. consciously so, I'd say. I think that's that's the thing. That I think they they do really, really well on reflection with this movie, which grew on me the more I thought about it. And in, in that, I think they're using the format of this being a Netflix movie really well. Yeah. There is a, a moment where Tim Blake Nelson looks at the camera, and I, and he's not so much looking at the camera like he would be in a theatre. There's a quality of it that Tele- I think uh, he's looking through a television at you on your sofa. And that is a brilliant thing that the Coen brothers can do, which, you know, it's just their own personal thing that you find these little moments and you go, wow, how did they do that? And I think those moments come again and again. There's a not, there are interesting moments, almost like in a 3D movie, where if there's an arrow going to be fired, they're going to make it look like it's being fired at the camera at you at home. So you're sort of passively watching this kind of cosy story, but also you're in the line of fire. There's a lot of that and there's a lot of them thinking about what the experience experience of watching this movie at home would be. That's why for me, in a way, it feels like the, the first movie that's really used the idea of Netflix and that this, this is cinema for the home. Uh, I haven't seen a, a movie that's done that so well. I think if you if people go back and watch it again or watch it for the first time, think about how much is thrown at the camera, uh, how much is coming at you in your living room. I can't help but feel, pers- this was just me, I mm. would have preferred it had they uploaded it as six short stories mm. that you had the option to press play and watch them as one as one mm. because because unlike uh, wild tales that argentinian movie mm. they, they didn't they, they they changed the pace and the feel up so much mm. that by the last two stories i was tiring a little bit mm. and i think i would have enjoyed them in a jim henson storyteller kind of way mm. and they had you know at each you had you had the pages of a book turning and you get you know what are the names of some of the different ones meal ticket all gold canyon and i loved that by the time i got mm. to the middle ones which is all gold canyon which is about an old gold prospector on his own talking to himself very little dialogue and you know what's what i love about you know we were every time when we were sitting at home watching it you're waiting for the twist every time however Mm. much you settle into these vistas and into the sort of feel of the old west and i really do enjoy that i really do enjoy the the feeling that it is covering a lot of terrain in the sense that it really gives you a feel of the overview of the old west mm, absolutely yeah you get the gold prospectors out on a you get this, you know this and then the last one is a load of wagons that are moving off over to oregon mm. which which really really does feel like a, a mini feature in itself mm. but by the time it had got to that mm. 
I like personally, I wish they had ended the movie at the end of that beautiful one with the I was not a fan of Mortal Remains at the end oh the last one th- there's one how would you describe the one it, it, tonally it's so different and I would have preferred mm. to see them laid out so that you could have watched them in mm. 20 minute excerpts oddly it's 20 it, minute installments rather the, yeah the, the last piece belongs to a kind of style which uh, Hateful Eight is also in with this mm. sort of vaguely uh, existential uh, sort of horror Christmas play uh, which is kind of, it's kind of what it is well it's that really sort of, felt like a telly play it yeah was it was like play. a telly play and, and it all it all is got Brendan Gleeson in it, and it all takes place uh, in, in a carriage going. And John Joy Neal's giving, mm. I think, a performance that's very theatrical, and I'm sure they encouraged him to go in that direction. Mm. But it is at odds, and I feel like they that they that they think they've bookended it, the movie, by putting Buster Scruggs at the beginning. Mm. He talks to the camera. He kind of he sort of sets you up. Well, this is the world you're going to enter, and then mm. the, it, it throws you. So many yeah. sucker punches, doesn't it? After yeah. that, and takes you in different directions. And at the end, there's this sort of coda of, well, this is here we are, and it's this model remains, and it's all, yeah, quite spiritual. It's quite, yeah. I didn't quite buy that last Buy that one. one. Yeah, well, I, th- I think what people think of the whole, of it as a whole will probably rest on whether that's one of your favourites or not. I think from yes. my, my understanding yes. of it, that is a lot of people's favourite. And it wasn't is my favourite. But I did think it had to go at the end. I think that was oh, a natural yes. move of where that their line of thinking was going. I mean, for a long time, people have had um, uh, debates over there are novels like David Soleil's All That Man Is that was up for the Booker Prize two years ago. There's a great book by Jennifer Egan, one of my favourites, uh, called the, A Visit from the Goon Squad. And these are ostensibly short stories, but they've, they're called a novel. Yeah. Um, and how they link together and whether we judge them as one piece or of a piece, it it is very sort of subjective, and I think what you're calling for is that maybe them to have specifically been uh, been been separated from each other. For me, I th- I think they had to to be like that. Do you think so? Yeah, I, I think they justify themselves as a whole more than most portmanteau films. But also, the, for me, the ending of the penultimate movie, which isn't going to mean a great deal to anybody who's not watched <laughs> it, so, so I won't bang yeah. on. I certainly wouldn't want to give it away. Hmm. Is such a perfect ending, but I suppose in terms of to come full circle mm. to to presenting, yeah, I, I do understand why they needed that. Is that it is was that a declaration was, of intent. It uh, was a very yeah. it was an epitaph, and it needed that. Yeah, was that was Zoe Kazan one, which yes. was the plasma. I thought her performance is a really terrific one. I think it's probably the, the best one. I've and there has the been whole, there has been everyone's good, really great. Well, the two things that've been talked about the smack that, that's been talked about this movie <laughs> uh, is that there are no female. There are very too few female parts in it, especially mm. given that they've written so many fantastic female roles mm. in the past. Francis McDormand in Fargo, yes. for instance. You know. Yeah, and I do, and I, I, I did notice that, I have to say. Yeah. Especially when she comes on screen and really lights it up, I think she's, fa- she's yeah. fantastic. That's true, and it, it, but it's almost like they might have held her back because once she enters into it, she offers such a different flavour and different quality. Yes. You can't take your eyes off her. She's really like, and you're, what that really achieves in an unpithy, sort of almost unshort story way is that you get this real uh, depth from her where you're really totally with her. And that, and that story goes in some quite unusual directions because she uh, is is in a sort of very difficult situation. She's a subject of a possible proposal at one point. And her whole thinking her way through that scenario that she's in, she takes you on that journey completely, I think, with every little moment. And she, well, she's absolutely the audience's representative yeah, as yeah. well. She's the only, the closest thing you get through that whole thing to the everyman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Apart from maybe that great one when you follow the gold prospector, which yes. kind of goes some quite... That's yeah. true, but even, even Tom Waits and that 
in that performance, there's something quite other about him. There's something quite, uh, this is a man from the past. This is how things used to be. Whether, Whereas uh, I think you're right. I think there's like Zane Carrot's like, well, this is where we are now. We all have uh, dilemmas that are in some way akin to this. And uh, our prospects and our future and life and death, those things remain the same. And that's... Uh, yeah. And also, I really enjoyed the fact that as entertaining as it all is, you know, sometimes you get people go, you go, well, if you could go back to any historical period, people, some people go, I know my, I think my, I think my dad would probably say, this um a goal with the old west because i think particularly <laughs> yeah. that generation that grew up steeped in kind of uh, uh, cowboys and you know westerns and mm. um i would not and that <laughs> yeah. and what i liked about that one is she you do feel that she is you know the closest thing you have to represent mm. so you think okay well, i'm with i get okay someone's popped up that's maybe i'm on a level with this person and you're right she's such a breath of fresh air and i think you're right it's perfectly timed but of course it is still a horrible free-for-all and a savage place to be. It is. And, it, yeah. and it's, there's no way it's going to end simply and there's no way it's going to end well. No. And there's no way she's going to end up as a sort of free, emancipated woman living a long life. You know, you're like, <laughs> exactly. no way is that Well, those things are completely, you're right, and we're completely aware from that. And that's why it's a completely perfect story and a perfect terrain for Coen Brothers' world. You know, that's not going to end well. It's a horrible place, the Wild West, where life is very cheap. cheap yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I also I I also quite because one my one of my least favourite Coen Brothers films, even yes. though it is beautifully made, and I can remember one particular shot from it so clearly in my mind, mm-hmm. a couple of shots from it, a couple of sort of choice moments mm-hmm. was uh, True Grit, their remake of True mm-hmm. Grit, because I was never quite sure why it was needed mm-hmm. to remake that film, but also I feel that there can sometimes be, and I don't you I I'd like to know what your idea is. I'm sure you could tell me. Um, there's, it's there's kind of an indulgence uh, in certain westerns, in modern westerns, but particularly in the acting style. Mm. I've noticed for American actors, mm. I've noticed that they love. Or my name is Tiberius Wilson. You may have met me back in the town of Kansas. It's a small town near <laughs> yeah. Kansas, but not quite that. There's, there's a sort of classicism that they still throw in there with characters that have got great verbosity or are very particularly odd. You know, there's that. But just lots of breathing yeah. and sniffing, yeah. and like any man over the age of thirty, even when he's not got something in his mouth, yeah. sounds like he's. Yeah, yeah. And I remember Barry Pepper and Jeff Bridges and everybody in True Grit seemed like they were on a a a bizarre competitive acting sort of marathon. With how little they could enunciate. With how little they could enunciate. I don't know what the equivalent would be for sort of British actors. Possibly Mm. gangster movies. I'm not Mm. sure if that would be. You know, people sort of talking about this sort of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lot, lot of palate problems they had in the World West. I think. You know, <laughs> a lot of cleft palates. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's a factual. That's a factual fact. Who knows? It's a fair point, actually. But, I mean, yeah, it's, but, like, it's chewing tobacco when you're not chewing tobacco. I, I agree, though. I think that style is much more palatable in small doses, where a character yes. can come up, have a speech, and you go, well, what's the point of that? And then you move on. But when you layer all those characters on top of each other, like uh, in True Grit, you're like, what do I do with that? This has got so much flavour that almost like chewing gum, you've chewed too much, ends up with a lot less flavour in the end, you know, over a long enough time scale. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, 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 I can see how that you feel. And, and, and also I remember thinking it was the fun, the first times I became aware of, of the aesthetic of, um, in terms of like set decorating and art, the art department, where the, how they age the cabins mm. and how they age the clothing and how sometimes it looks a little bit too All Saints. Mm. Like they've sort of had it, they've, it's been pre-aged, like mm. they've been buying pre-distressed 
cabins. And actually, I was thinking, if we talk in a second about uh, any... Uh, well, it kind of seems ridiculous to talk about streaming movies, given these are all streaming <laughs> movies. But, and I, but if, we, if we had any movies that we thought possibly if people enjoy these two other movies that are out there, recent movies in the last couple of years, might like the one that I was going to suggest, yes. if, it's, if it seems like an okay time let's to move on then. by let's you, see. let's see. Let's see. Uh, into suggesting uh, Slow West by uh, John yes. McLean, which is t- 2015. And I know this is a strange thing, but Slow West is, if I remember correctly, it's a fantastic modern Western mm. that, again, gives you a sense of what a complete free-for-all. And I remember one of the best things is um, when he, um, when they sort of arrive and they're sort of, I think it's about a, a, a kind of an outlaw traveling with a young boy, isn't that what That's it ends right. up being? That they, yeah. They're sort of thrown together. So it, the setup is pretty generic, mm. but it takes it in some very interesting directions. And, and in very Cohen style, they come across just a mad cavalcade of characters. Mm cornucopia of characters. Michael Fassbender and Jodie Smith-McPhee. Thanks to the two. Well done. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I couldn't remember the name of the, the, the mm. young guy. He was fantastic mm. in that. Mm. And it's got a, a Ben Mendelsohn gives a, a truly menacing performance that really chews up yeah. scenery. As but, he of, often does. But and right at the beginning, I remember there's a bit where they're sort of walking along and they just walk past... Um, there's a guy from China. There's a guy with China and his family. He's setting up a shop. And you get the sense of that mm. this land was was perceived to be up for grabs. And it was about who was going to fight harder to keep it yeah. and stake their claim on it. Mm. And what I really like at the end is there is a beautiful shootout. It ends on one of the most inventive Western mm. shootouts I've ever, ever seen. Certainly, it's been done in a very long time. Mm. Um, but it happens when they're in these cabins that they've built. But the cabins look like they were they came from Ikea yesterday and they've not even put the, the sort of weatherproofing. They've not put the sort of wicks on it yet um and of course that's how it would have looked like it's brand new like yes this terrain's old and it belonged to a native american population who were being slaughtered and who were constantly also around the back you know those guys fight hard for what's theirs mm. but what i loved is how new everything how shiny and new mm. these were people arriving like you would at your first flat with a load of ikea stuff Absolutely, in boxes yeah, yeah. and true grit for me was was the the most clumsy or the most p- kind of peak of that sort of pre-distressed yeah. Indie looking, uh, uh, like old west, old but, west yeah. that was getting to the point. I think it probably started with Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, which was the beginning of a grittier, harder kind of western, mm-hmm. moving away from John Ford ones, Sergio Leone ones that were a little bit more uh, cartoony, possibly mm. in a way, or, or not cartoony. I shouldn't say that about John Ford at all. <laughs> but um, I would recommend uh, Slow West. Yeah. That's the the one that I would chuck on the pile, mm-hmm. and the other one that I should possibly suggest mm-hmm. is yeah. I mean, of course, go back and watch. Citizen Kane. Why mm. not? It's never ever a bad watch. <laughs> but um, we both watched a while ago. There was a re-release um, of Touch of Evil, mm. which I think is one of his most straight-up enjoyable movies. It's a piece of 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 great, like ninety minutes of just sheer noir brilliance. Mm. Is Orson Welles made it in nineteen fifty-eight, and at this point, the good story, the interesting story behind that was that Charlton Heston, who does play a Mexican gentleman in it, mm. uh, uh, Eduardo. I can't remember the name of his character now. I couldn't. Anyway, mm. talking about, but it's black and white. So you, they, I mean, they do black him up, <laughs> which is like, I mean, it's a kind it's problematic, of problematic, un- isn't it? Yes. Yeah, Unbelievably problematic, <laughs> but you don't realise until the very end of the film. So about the, the way it's roll. shot as well, you don't quite get that. And no, they've obviously done something just with his whole look. Well, to be just... honest, I think what it is is they've just dyed his eyebrows and his hair, and they've sort of That's done right. it with sort of slight makeup. But it is—I yeah. it, feel like it should 
I don't want to have to mention that, but I feel no. I should. Anyway, that Charlton Heston obviously had a lot of clout in 1958. Mm. They said, who are we going to get to play this really horrible detective? Uh, and famously, it gets touched upon in the documentary we were talking about, about Austin Wells. He had a thing about always putting prosthetic <laughs> yeah. noses always on. Always had a fake nose. Which is yeah. weird, because it implies that he didn't really like how he looked. But then, and I was about to say it's weird because of how big he got, but actually... You do hear people talking about that a lot. It is a sort of self-hatred sometimes yeah, yeah, when yeah. people do put on the way. Yeah. I don't want to lazily, psychologically profile and analyse. No, that's uh, not what we're here for. No, it's not what we're here we're for. We're, we're here not here for that. Anyway, he plays Hank Quinlan, this sort of corrupt mm. detective, and they man- and uh, Charlton Hester said, I really think we should get Orson Welles in. The studio didn't want to go anywhere near it. And then at the last minute, he said, I want Orson Welles to direct this. And they agreed the only way Orson Welles would direct it is he wouldn't get paid a dollar to do mm. it. And actually, he gets some credible stuff in. It's got this opening 12-minute uh, steady cam shot of a bomb being put in the boot of a car, which is one of the coolest openings to any film ever. <laughs> and I could kind of start to ramble about this film possibly more than I did about The Other Side of the World. So I'll just say it's an absolute treat. The next time it's raining and it's cold outside and you want to really watch something that's spooky and atmospheric and exciting and unexpected and full of real scene-chewing, scenery-chewing characters... Uh, put on Amazon Prime and uh, look up Touch of Evil by Orson Welles. Yeah, I'll just throw in there, listen to me, Marlon. It's one that not many yeah. people know. Uh, I don't think I saw it uh, at the NFT a few years ago. Uh, yeah, and it is this very strange uh, amalgam of movie. I think, as I remember rightly, if I remember rightly, he uh, thought that you could hypnotise yourself. He'd heard you can hypnotise yourself. The way he thought he would do this is by uh, recording a sort of autobiographical note on himself. So it's all... Uh, by him, to him. And there are hours of this this footage that he's got on tapes that he was recording, which he would then play to himself, which were things for him to think about while he was in a meditative state. What do you think about that, Marlon? What do you think about uh, this moment in your life? And they've cut it up and used that. So it very much seems like he is narrating his own documentary. That's brilliant. Uh, and, and it's just such a, a great framing device and a, and a really interesting movie if you're at all interested in Marlon Brando. Which you, which you should be, I think. I think you should be. Yeah. I think if you've listened to us witter on this long yeah, then about probably, Orson Welles, then you're yeah. probably going to be quite excited to listen to so. Marlon Brando narrate his own documentary <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. about his own life. Well, listen, I think that's it for number three. Mm. I thought we could end on a quote by Orson Welles. Oh, wow. <clears throat> I'm, I don't, this now looks like I'm going to do an impression. I don't have an impression of no, Orson Welles. No, just do Should I try? Mm. We're born. I'm going to try. It's going to sound. It's who's it going to sound like? We tell you at the end. You tell me who you think it sounds okay, like. Okay, all right. Okay. <laughs> How does he speak? He's. I know. Okay, I went to. We're born alone. We live alone. We die alone. Only through our love and friendship can we create the illusion for the moment that we're not alone. And if that bums you out, here's mm-hmm. another one. Ask not what you can do for your country. Ask what's for lunch. <laughs> that's very good I don't know who it did sound like but I would have liked that to be the voice of the guy who used to do intros to VHSs back in the day like whenever you rent or buy a video <laughs> you have to check what certification it is I would please like rewind the video and wipe off any detritus on the case <laughs> you animals make me sick someone's recorded over my copy of Clue starring Tim Curry who was that? was it you mother? By the way, if anyone knows how Clue ends, please write it on the back of this video cassette. Halfway through it stops and coming to America kicks in. Oh, that must have been me. Were there any tits in Clue? It kind of... <laughs> I don't know what. I don't know we might cut all that. But we, I might but, cut all that. But we did it anyway. 
Happy Thanksgiving, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. See you on the next one. Oh, yeah, Happy post Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, Thanksgiving, then you get Christmas. Love talking.